Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Thursday, the 25th of January. Coming up, bogus qualifications, two takes on the issue, one from a vetting perspective and then reputation damage. The travel industry is calling on greater regulation, but is this going to fly? Good news on the inflation front overnight. Will this influence any rates decision by the Reserve Bank and the multi-party charter on its economic thinking in this election year? And we're out the starting blocks with this story. The Monetary Policy Committee scheduled to make its first interest rate decision. Experts are expecting rates to remain unchanged as inflation risks remain. Investex Chief Economist Annabel Bishop is with me now. Annabel, inflation risks are still there, but there was some good news overnight. Yes. Hi, Jeremy. Look, I think, you know, for South Africa, um, our Reserve Bank would really like to see inflation at 4.5% and, of course, see it remain around 4.5% to feel comfortable cutting. So, as you mentioned, yesterday we did see some good news. We obviously saw South Africa's CPI inflation rate drop down to 5.1%. And we must bear in mind that prior to a couple of months ago in the reading, it was closer to 6%. So, of course, you know, a positive outcome and it continues a downward trend that it evinced over 2023. That doesn't mean that every single month it fell <laughs> because it's a trend, but it means that on the whole, overall, it fell and likely to continue doing so this year. In fact, reaching 4.5%, which is the midpoint of the inflation target range, probably around the middle of this year. And we think the South African Reserve Bank probably remains on course to cut interest rates then. What are the principal risks that still remain? You know, we obviously are in an El Nino cycle. And while there is a lot of moisture in the soil, because we've had very good rains in the past few years, I think as all of us can recall, and in fact, even had some good rains this year in some areas of the country. Nevertheless, as we move through summer, but certainly into autumn and winter, worries are, and then of course, the next summer, which is important, worries are that the soil will obviously start to dry out, that Africa could go into a drought. And that, of course, then does push up the prices in the largest component of the inflation basket on its own. And of course, that is food prices. So that's one risk. Also a risk as well, interestingly, is that globally supply chain costs have started to rise quite steeply. And this is because of some defragmentation. We know that obviously there's been a sharp reduction in use of the Suez Canal because of the the Yemen Houthi attacks on passing um, ships in that area and of course you know going around the Cape of Good Hope or uh, it obviously costs a lot more there's even been some comments about possibly going through Arctic routes all of these obviously could increase costs 
On the downside, we obviously could also see the RAND weaken substantially further. That's always a risk to us. It's not our central case at all, but RAND weakness does feed through very directly into higher inflation. Oil price also, of course, a risk as well. But overall, commodity prices are expected to be subdued this year because of weak global economic growth. Annabel, potentially at the end of May, that's what the conventional wisdom is. We have a national election. To what extent is this going to influence in any way the thinking of the Saab? Ah, yes. You know, look, interestingly, we can have that election either in the second or the third quarter of this year. So it could even run out to August. But of course, you know, um, September even. But of course, you know, the point really is that um, going into an election year, there obviously are concerns. It can, you know, create some market uncertainty, particularly where the ANC is expected to get below the 50% mark, in other words, lose outright majority. However, the South African Reserve Bank will not concern itself with such issues, certainly not at its January MPC meeting. The election will be too far away. As you said, you know, the, the election before has taken place in May, and of course, that's given many people thought that obviously it'll take place again in May this year. Interestingly, the ANC has put out a party coalition document, and it's, it's, it's come out quite negatively about going into coalition with the EFF. The EFF, of course, being South Africa's third largest political party and also the most extreme left-wing party in South Africa. Going into coalition with the EFF would seem to be very negative for business confidence, for economic activity and growth as a consequence of that. And, of course, as well, you know, that obviously would concern markets. So... At the moment, it really does seem, you know, given all the polls, far too early to tell, but where we are nevertheless standing today, that the ANC probably could get anywhere between around 50 and um, 45%. Those seem to be the most likely polls. Others, of course, can push it lower. And if it does get, come out closer to 47%, which seems to be um, at the moment what the expectation is it's very easy to go into some tiny, tiny coalition parties to form a coalition. Even if it has more substantial loss, again, it's probably likely to go into coalition. The expectation there is that it will not really change the governance or the policy of the country. So that's where we sit today. But of course, you know, the RAND is volatile. The country can have political volatility. We don't know what the months ahead are going to bring. And uh, we still have no real resolution, do we, to the Transnet ports crisis and uh power blackouts, load shedding. Well, that's a big worry for 2024 and, of course, for 2025, 26 and 27. If you look at the RRP 2023 that was recently published, saying we're definitely going to have load shedding to 2027, possibly out to 2030. You know, all of these create weak economic growth. That's sometimes a, that, that's something the South African Reserve Bank is going to concentrate quite heavily on in its MPC committee meeting. Its primary objective is to target inflation in a 6 to 24 month period, particularly 12 to 18 months. Given that CPI inflation is likely to average four and a half percent this year next year from our forecast point of view it shouldn't have much concern it however has an inflation average of five percent for this year so it's going to be very very interesting to see if the reserve bank drops its inflation forecast or not for this year and of course what it comes out for 2025 they have four and a half percent so that would really indicate there's no pressure to hike and of course they would be considering cuts it's probably too early but nevertheless because of the weak economy and of course you know you've mentioned the structural issues which are pulling back economic growth and the reserve bank government himself says he doesn't necessarily see the need to cut interest rates when it's a structural issue such as Transnet and Eskom that are killing growth and not obviously interest rate hikes necessarily. So that's where we sit at the moment. We sit really probably in a flat interest rate decision um, when we see the MPC meet uh, this afternoon to deliver the outcome. And of course,
most likely for the next MPC meeting as well in March. It's it's unlikely, unfortunately, you know, to really move the dial. That's the weakness in the economy. But of course, it remains highly concerning. Annabel Bishop is Investec's chief economist. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Today we have two stories on the workplace and qualifications. Now, government is still struggling with senior officials who are not qualified for their positions. There are close to around 2,000 officials who are not qualified. Kasatu says this is impacting on the quality of service delivery. I'm going to talk now to Matthew Parks from the Federation based in Parliament in Cape Town. Matthew, how could it be then that we have so many people in jobs who simply are not qualified to do them? A couple of issues. I think you know, some people who just for historical reasons have the chance, the opportunity to go and study. And I think in those instances, government you know, normally says, okay, you need to get this qualification. Here's a reasonable time frame and support to go and do so. And that's fine. Many institutions do provide that um, because there was no malice intended, etc. Is that maybe the position was reviewed and said, okay, we actually need a degree in this position. Mm. But I think the real issue on this one, the ministerial question was that the minister, I think, has highlighted that, and she's not referring to all public servants. We don't want to kind of tarnish the good reputation of your ordinary nurses and teachers and police officers. But she was speaking to senior management, that's the top management of the state, where, which is about 20,000 positions, where I think she said about 1,800 persons don't have the qualifications. That's quite concerning because, you know, those are very senior positions. The person do need to have certain skills, certain qualifications, certain backgrounds. And if they don't have, that's concerning because how will they then provide the leadership of that position? And in some instances, we've seen that people lied on the CVs, they claim to have degrees they don't have, etc. Or some instances, there was fraud in collaboration with the person doing the recruiting. We've seen at times in municipalities, for example, people appointed to be executive directors for utilities, you know, dealing with engineering services, water, electricity, and so on, sanitation, and have no engineering background or qualifications. So that obviously means they won't know what are the technical requirements of such strategic positions. That's quite concerning, and it does point to a broader society um, ethics crisis, if I can put it that way. So what, Matthew lie. Parks, what it, what it also points to, surely, is just uh, erroneously turning a blind eye and elements of cadre deployment. Yeah, no, exactly. There's the ethical crisis we're facing, that people are just abusing things. The human resource systems in the state for senior management clearly in this sense have shown that to be faulty. And we don't think it's just in the public service. We think there's mm. a problem in, in local government too, specifically. Um, and there's a real impact upon the quality of service delivery out there. You know, at times some of our unions in the health sector have raised concerns about CEOs being appointed of hospitals who have no qualifications to do so. And yet these are not, you're not running a restaurant, for example. Uh, maybe that's the wrong example to make. You need to have certain, you know, technical background to understand what a hospital works, what it requires in terms of medication, in terms of staffing, in terms of shifts, hygiene, et cetera, et cetera, that you and I wouldn't have, but that you would expect a CEO of a hospital to have. And that's really concerning and it points to an ethics crisis and a governance crisis in this state. What's also concerning is that we still have a number of unqualified senior government officials in spite of measures that were taken, if I recall, 2016, 2017. So this is, uh, it, it seems nothing is being done about it. No one's addressing it. No, and that, that points to a broader crisis in the state where political office bettors will say, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and they don't do it. They make the commitment in parliament or an budget speech, annual performance plan or whatever, yeah. and they don't follow up. And a lot of things are not complicated. You know, it's it's not unreasonable to say your position has been upgraded. It needs to have a bachelor's degree in whatever. Here's five years to go and do it. 
And so I think for us, it is a crisis that it needs to be dealt with if we want to, to, to take, you know, improve the quality of service delivery. Also, I think maybe on a, on a more positive note, Jeremy, we also need to make the educational our approach to education to be a lifelong journey. It shouldn't be simply a thing that, well, that's something you did as a young person at school or university. We should be constantly seeking how to invest in the skills of public servants, of politicians, of society generally. If we want to grow this economy, we want to improve our productivity levels across the board. But we still have a problem to deal with. So what kind of punishment or accountability measures do you believe should be implemented? In the instances of a fraud where a person claimed to have a degree and didn't have it, then the law has been tightened. That person needs to be dealt with according to disciplinary procedures. And that, yeah, the, you know, the book should be thrown in such persons without a doubt. In the instance where, you know, you know, there was no malice, etc., then, yeah, as you mentioned, what was meant to have been done and it needs to be done is that people should be given a reasonable time frame to get their qualifications, given the support, etc., and do so and hold, it, hold that commitment accountable. Don't just simply make a promise and don't, you know, deliver upon it. I think for us, that's the true kind of approach that needs to be taken. But government has really got to move from simply making promises and not acting upon them. We've got to move to a situation where we actually do what we say we're going to do. And you and I can talk about this issue until the cows come home, but there's got to be a willingness by government to actually move on it. And uh, one senses that's not going to be the case, that uh, we're going to be left with this problem until something more radical happens. Yeah, and perhaps one may needs to make an example at a high level. We've had, you know, politicians who have claimed to have various degrees and have been found wanting that, no, actually, they didn't have those degrees. And in a worst case scenario, actually, there was an element, uh, there's a scandal of fraud that the SIU picked up at mm-hmm. University of Fort Hare. Perhaps, you know, the president should make an example out of one or two ministers or politicians who have been found seriously wanting, because that is a clear case of fraud, of malice, etc., of corruption, and remove such persons. That can perhaps send a, a better signal to the smaller fish in the you know, senior management. And of course, we also need to find a way of you know, rewarding people. In some workplaces, not all, but some workplaces, actually there's a culture that if you get a qualification, you can get a, you know, just not increasing in your, in your job. That's going to help to incentivize people. Obviously, you need to make sure there's no fraud involved, et cetera, given our experiences. But we really need to move to a situation where we, all of us, we embrace education as a lifelong journey and we constantly seek to invest in our own skills. It's going to benefit you as an individual and it'll benefit your workplace too. All right, Matthew Parks, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. All right, I want to move on to part two of this issue now, and you'll be well aware that Tabi Lioka will no longer serve on President Ramaphosa's Presidential Economic Advisory Council after her membership was terminated this week following allegations of her having misrepresented her qualifications. She has left other high-profile boards as well. I want to explore this issue with Rahin LaRue, who is Managing Director of the agency Reputation Matters. And firstly, Rahin, how could the misrepresentation have been avoided? First and foremost, the minute she was asked for her qualifications was to give a certified certificate with a date on, which you could easily obtain with, I'm sure, your student number. The professor that she worked with could uh, verify that that with her. Um, But also, the fact is, all the boards that she applied for, that very first board, should have asked where's your certified certificate, just par and parcel as as a tick list of the process of getting anybody on board. And when that wasn't picked up, it could have been nipped in the bud right there and then. She could have got the certificate in place. We wouldn't have had all of this drama years later. So what you're suggesting is there's a degree of culpability as far as the boards are concerned. They were remiss in not properly vetting the qualifications, which they should have done. 
Most certainly. I think with any governance process, when you get anybody on board, on your board, actually within any part of your organization, there has to be a policy that you follow to make sure that you're getting the right people on board that resonate with your values, that it's got your company or your entity's best interest at heart. And you then have a process in place that you follow to get the right people to do the work in the right way. And if it starts off with not quite following all the checkpoints or you're kind of missing a step, what else is remiss? What else are we missing out on that could have detrimental consequences at a later stage? So yes, this is just a certificate, but there could be so many other things that could be missed in gaps and steps not being followed. The sense that I have is that many companies, certainly big companies, big blue chip companies have the policies, but somewhere along the line, they are simply not being adhered to. And I think that's part of the the massive problem of not following the processes. But then also, I think what's key and why it's not happening, people aren't being kept accountable. It's like, now it's okay, sorry, we've, um, (laughs) we haven't done this. And um, that's, that's very, very problematic. The misrepresentation of qualifications by high-profile individuals like Tabi Lioka, it has an impact on the reputation of the organization involved and also a long-term hit on a person's professional uh, reputation. Most certainly, because by association, you are a representative of that entity. And if you are going to misrepresent yourself, you are then misrepresenting all of those entities that you're a part of. So 100%, it has an impact on everybody's reputation. And difficult to repair those reputations, particularly as far as the individual is concerned. It is. It's. I use the example of building on sand. It's not impossible to build something beautiful, but it is going to take a lot of time and money to get a stable foundation in place. But you're always going to worry is it stable enough? And the same with a lie or when things start off not as authentic or transparent, you're always going to worry. So it can't not be fixed. It can certainly be fixed, but it's going to take a huge amount of time, a lot of investment. And yeah, it's not something that's ever going to be as good as it initially was. So in the case of Tabilioka, how, how does she begin that process again, if in fact she can? There's two things that I think that, that could or should happen is just give us the this, this certificate with a date on it. And that can put this whole drama to rest. But secondly, if in the event there isn't the qualification that, that she said there is, you know, you know what, just fess up and say, you know what, sorry, I don't have it yet. I'm partially through it. I made a mistake. And it's, you know, people will be a lot more willing to forgive when people are just open and honest and transparent about things than continuous lies. So, you know what, rip the band-aid, it is what it is, and let's move on from there. Attached to this whole affair is a uniquely South African problem, and that is companies balancing the need for diversity in hiring and the pressure particularly to hire black women with PhDs without compromising on qualification verification. I honestly think that we have incredible talent when it comes to South Africans of all races, all genders, it really to 
check those qualifications is really not and should not be a difficult thing. To ask for a certified qualification really shouldn't be. And I think our universities, our tertiary education institutions are filled with brilliant minds. And there's so many people that are working so incredibly hard towards their PhDs, towards their masters, towards getting board accreditations, that it really shouldn't be something difficult to obtain. Regina LaRue, thank you very much indeed from uh, Reputation Matters. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. This now a follow-up to a story earlier this week and in a statement that we've got, the Association of Southern African Travel Agents says it wants to reassure travellers that fraud cases in the industry remain rare. We spoke earlier to a parliamentarian who is calling for greater regulation of the industry. Otto de Fris is the Chief Executive Officer of the Association and joins me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Otto, where in your observation then does most travel industry fraud tend to occur? Good afternoon, Jeremy. Um, look, it, it appears as in most cases, um, the opportunists and the fraudsters are operating around leisure travel. Um, we are not really seeing this um, sort of play out in the corporate travel space. It's very much a leisure thing. And I think that's really where, you know, I, I feel the most for people that have been taken uh, for a ride with these scammers because that's their hard-earned money and their savings that they put in. You know, for, for many of them, it'll be a once-in-a-lifetime mm. trip. And uh, it's, it's, it's extremely disappointing that we have, you know, people that are, um, if you will, abusing the opportunity to deliver, uh, or in this case, not to deliver uh, meaningful travel services and products to the consumer. How or what are the common characteristics then of such fraud? Well, look, a couple of things that we have consistently made recommendations about when it comes to looking for fraudsters is that you need to ensure that they're actually a fully registered business um, and that they have business bank accounts. Um, You should be sure that they are able to process payments using credit cards. We've seen time and time again that the scammers are generally able to convince consumers to make EFT payments into their bank account. And in many cases, we've even heard that those bank accounts are in the name of the individuals and not even a company's name. So, you know, those are big alarm bells. And the great thing about being able to pay with a credit card is that you have the chargeback facilities. So if the services are not rendered, you'd have the ability to recover those funds through your bank. So in the face of fraud cases that we reported on earlier this week, and particularly with uh, Muslims going to Mecca, that's where the focus seemed to be, do you support additional measures or reforms to strengthen self-regulation such as it exists within the industry, or uh, is there a point to greater government regulation uh, in this respect? Jeremy, I I truly believe that we as a SATA are very well placed to facilitate and continue to provide a level of um, self-regulation. We have been uh, in that function since 1956. We represent almost 99% of the industry in terms of market share. We have a lot of checks and balances uh, that um, our members need to comply with in order to not only attain but retain their membership, including financial reviews, including uh, the need to comply with our code of conduct, with our constitution, 
And I think it's very important for the travelers and the traveling consumers out there to note that in the past decade, not one of these incidents have impacted, has, has been as a result of one of our members. So in every single case that we've seen over the years, it has always been someone who is not an ASATA member. Now, there's never any guarantees. Um, fraud can take place in any way, shape or form, and it's not unique to our sector. But at least with us, you have the opportunity to mitigate the risk of any fraudulent behavior by engaging with an ASATA travel agent. You argue that increased regulation could damage the industry. How do you plan to address this issue? Well, I think it's incumbent on the industry as a collective to make sure that we uh, take the necessary steps to not only... Uh, encourage the traveling consumer to look out for the Asata brand, but also to ensure that we build up sufficient credibility in the eyes of the consumer, that the confidence and the trust is there and will continue to be there. And certainly these conversations help to support those efforts. Um, the industry will be getting together in the next couple of weeks uh, under the ASATA banner to have a number of discussions around the way forward. And certainly this issue around uh, fraud and scamsters will come up. We have these discussions on a regular basis because we need to ensure that wherever possible, we deliver the right kind of self-regulation that meets the industry and the consumer's needs. And uh, it, is, it is obviously time that we do a review of that again. Otto de Fris from the Association of Southern African Travel Agents. Thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. The multi-party charter for South Africa has unveiled its economic plans in this election year in the face of what it terms our bleak economic outlook marked by a high unemployment rate. I want to talk now to Wayne Thring from the ACDP. His party is a member of the charter. And first of all, how does the multi-party charter plan to stabilize public finances, something that you said you're going to do? Jeremy, I think that when the multi-party charter was established, one of the key issues was it identified that South Africa is facing severe economic challenges. And the first focus point, amongst many others, some core top-level approaches that the multi-party charter has is um, addressing the challenge of growing the economy as well as growing jobs, understanding that South Africa has had jobless growth even where the economy has grown. Uh, jobs have not uh, grown, and we've had a uh, unemployment rate currently that's sitting at over 40% mm. on the expanded definition. So some key aspects that we looked at in terms of our top-level approach is attracting domestic and foreign investment, looking at reducing fuel prices significantly. The multi-party charter leaders, and, and that's some nine leaders that were present at the press conference, spoke about also the need to increase efficiency on government fiscal management, ensuring that government expenditure on infrastructure returns value for money. I think most South Africans can agree if one just looks at Eskom, if one looks at Transnet, if one looks at the post office and many of our state-owned enterprises, a lot of the challenges there has been poor infrastructure spend and where in money has been spent on infrastructure it has not given return uh, value return on that on that right. money spent. Let me let me pick you up on let me pick you up on two issues that you've just raised. One is direct foreign investment, all very well, but how are you going to do that given the ongoing load shedding problem that we have, as well as uh, perception around crime, for instance? Well, I think when one looks at direct foreign investment, 
I think very, very clearly and, and importantly, one of the things is that we must look at eliminating the prohibitive limitations that currently exist on investment. What we have is a disjunct in terms of government policy. We have investment that comes uh, into the country very clearly where there's policy certainty as well as political certainty. We don't have that. So the multi-party charter, and clearly I think from the ACDP's perspective, we also have, if one looks at our policies, our economic policies, speak about uh, reducing these prohibitive limitations on investment. So, so what, are, what, are, what are those limitations that you're talking about? I think that some of the limitations on investment is, uh, is with regards to clearly policy uncertainty. And, what, what policy um, uncertainty? What, let, me, let me give one, one example, one example in terms of policy uncertainty. Government, uh, the ANC was looking at amending Section 25 of the Constitution in order to allow for expropriation without compensation, expropriation of land without compensation. We have many foreign-owned companies that have purchased land in South Africa. Now, that is a, a huge threat to foreign direct investment into South Africa. If you've invested in land, you've got factories, you've put up factories worth billions of rands or dollars in South Africa, and the next minute government may, there's the possibility that that exists, that the land and your investment may actually be expropriated, um, it serves as a limitation uh, to to investment. All right, that's that's one example. I will take that. Let's talk about uh, reducing fuel prices. How would you do that, given that the fuel price in South Africa is effectively dependent on, on global factors? Well, I think that one of the challenges that we have is the general fuel levy. I think most South Africans, in fact, if one just looks at what goes into that fuel levy and one looks at the fuel price, if I can recall off the top of my head, I think it's, it's close. It possibly could be close on to like 20% of the, the current fuel price that goes towards a fuel levy. That is what government actually takes. It's, it's around about that, uh, that amount. Mm. And so I think that we would target that general fuel levy firstly because what government is doing is because of government inefficiencies, you're looking at the fuel levy in a sense as a, as a, a cash cow, taking hard-earned tax money from citizens to compensate for government inefficiencies. So I think right, one of the things is, is, that is targeting the general fuel levy by ensuring you have one that is not going to be just a cash cow and at the same time punish your taxpayers. Fair enough. You've used the word efficiency on a couple of occasions. How do you improve efficiency? Well, improving efficiency, I think that the ACDP as well as I think all of the multi-party charter parties uh, have agreed that one of the things that we've got to direct is a professional civil service. Currently, we have a public service that is compromised and compromised in terms of cadre deployment policies of the ruling party, that has got to go. It's got to be within your civil service, it's got to be a professional civil service based on competence and get, uh, based on skill, uh, based on honesty. And so one of the ways of actually improving efficiency, particularly within government, is to ensure that we have a, a professional civil service. Right. The sec- secondly, is to deal, obviously, very firmly with corruption. Corruption is destroying, I think Professor Rousseau indicated that South Africa is actually, and that the ANC is committing economic suicide. And we cannot allow for South Africa to become a suicidal statistic, a nation state that fails because of government inefficiencies, government lack of transparency and government corruption. All right, Wayne Thring from the ACDP speaking on behalf of the multi-party charter. Thank you very much for joining me.
And before we go, we asked on our daily poll yesterday how you perceive the future of the insurance sector. Technology-driven, a balance between tech and personalized services, or always human-centric? And not unexpectedly, an even split between tech and human beings is the consensus. Today on our poll, how can companies guard against misrepresentation of qualifications? Three options, strengthen vetting, enhance governance, or better promote ethical standards. Go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page. I'll have the results on the show tomorrow. MoneyWeb at midday. We're live at noon weekdays. We're then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.